What is your picture of a good life? Care providers asked Edward Bailey this question in treatment, and he has been pursuing that vision with massive amounts of effort ever since. He joins us to talk about vision and hope, going from a trap house to recovery, to running and growing the no longer bound treatment center in Atlanta, Georgia. He is scouring the country for quality treatment centers where they serve people over profit while doing interventions with Farron Recovery. He talks about servant leadership, spiritual trauma, family perfectionism, and freedom for good. Enjoy. Welcome to the Illuminate Recovery Podcast. We shed light on mental health issues, mental illness, and addiction recovery. Ways to cope, manage, and inspire. Beyond the self-care we will discuss, you may need the help of a licensed professional. My name is Kurt Nider. I'm a husband, father, entrepreneur, a handyman, and a student of life. I avoid conflict, I deflect with humor, and I'm fascinated by the human experience. And I'm Shelly Mangum. I am a clinical mental health counselor, and my favorite role of all times is grandma. I am a seeker of truth, and I feel like life should be approached with tremendous curiosity. I ask the dumb questions. I fill in the gaps. The Illuminate Recovery Podcast is brought to you by Illuminate Billing Advocates. Make billing and collection simple with leader in substance abuse and mental health billing services. Verification and analysis of benefits, pre-authorizations, utilization management, accurate claim submission and management, denial and appeal management, and industry-leading reporting. Improve your practice's cash flow and your ability to help your clients with Illuminate Billing Advocates. Edward Bailey is joining Kurt and I today. Edward is about um, doing work that matters for people who matter. Edward's story from method addict to CEO inspires, engages, and provides hope for families struggling with addiction. After growing no longer bound at Atlanta-based Addiction Recovery Center from 1 million to 15 and 15 employees to 5 million and 100 employees, he is now focused on serving leaders and families as an entrepreneur. As a national certified intervention professional, Edward gets the opportunity to help individuals struggling with addiction gain their lives back through a unique and experienced approach. With an extensive personal background in addiction and recovery, Fair and Recovery offers services for people looking to start their freedom journey for good. Edward, thanks for being with us today. Glad to be here. It's super fun. We should, you know, we should kind of give, because the listeners don't get to see what we see. And I know you just gave us the grand tour of of the the RV. You know, we should give that picture of your your travel in in luxury right now, you know, at a conference with the family, traveling across the country in the RV. And that's a little bit unique. So that might be fun to start with, you know, maybe – maybe talk a little bit about what that journey's been like. First of all, you cannot start with the word luxury. No matter what you do in 400 square feet, the word luxury does not come in when you are responsible for managing the own waste of your family. That is not luxury. The only difference between me being in a mobile home is that I say that my home is mobile. That's the only difference. And so that's that's also not luxury. But it is living my dream. I tell you what, I went through the program that I ended up leading back in 2004. And I remember, like it was yesterday, sitting down and they gave me a piece of paper, my counselors, and said, 
what is your picture of the good life? And so they were asking me to dream and to have a vision. And I remember writing down something that seemed so far-fetched. And it was, I want to be trusted. I want to be a husband. And I want to be a dad. And so today I get to live that dream that came true that took a bunch of hard work. And so waking up next to my seven and four-year-old little girl and my beautiful wife of about 14 years now is just a dream. So, but I don't know about luxury, Shelly. I'm not sure about that, but it is, it's an absolute blast. Uh, well, fun, fun's almost, you know, fun's almost as good or better than luxury because, you know, that's, that's all perspective. But very yeah, cool. I, sure. I just think it's fun, you know, and, and something that that says about you, you know, when I think about that is that th- there is something about dreaming, about doing something different and out of the norm, as opposed to actually taking action and making it happen. And, and not everybody is able to do that. So we ought to touch on that a little bit about what, what really allowed you to take that leap of, of faith and say, yeah, we can totally do this and, and I can still live all of my dreams and fulfill all of my goals while we're, you know, while we're tripping across the United States. Yeah, vision is actually probably my favorite word or topic. So love that you touched on it. I think vision was a big part of what got me through what was killing me. Like laying out that vision for my life was, uh, it gave me a purpose to go through pain. And so it, vision ended up also being a really powerful thing when we were st- when I started uh, leading the organization that I was going through. And man, we wrote a vision that was terrifying. We had a old school nonprofit with about 10 employees and we dreamed this massive dream about turning it into a 12-month residential treatment center that was clinical and that was licensed and all these things and so we had a vision that was about half intimidating and half inspiring Uh, but we believed it and so I think a couple things with the vision if you believe that it's supposed to happen that it can happen then a person that believes something your beliefs drive your behaviors and so it's just a really powerful thing and then the only thing but you know the only thing that kind of differentiates a vision from a fantasy is insane amounts of action and so everybody's got a dream I mean you know I'm here in in Palm Springs and there's homeless people, everybody that's, you walk up to anybody on the street and anybody's got a dream. What do you want life to be like later? Everybody's got one. And so it's the people or the, the people that can inspire people towards that dream that are willing to take just massive action towards it. And so like, I think one thing also is like building your faith. And so one, one way to build faith is to look back in your past and see that the things that you've gone for have worked out. And the thing, if you put hard work to it, it can be accomplished. And so yeah, this next vision was we were sitting there knowing that a 17-year career was ending for us. And our next vision was to spend as much time as possible with our little girls and to be together as a family as much as possible and still to be able to impact people for good. And so we came across this crazy idea to sell everything and to move into an RV and to be a family full-time. And so, I mean, to be completely honest, like any story of pursuit of vision there's a whole lot of pain in the way and there was a ton of pain in the way with this transition as well. Transitions are just brutal. And so we've been going through some really hard transitions for sure. And so I think vision doesn't end up saying that everything's going to go perfect. Vision's just a point in the future that we can navigate towards the ship of our life. And it says, all right, I know where I'm going. And so there's a purpose to go through the storms of life. And so it just gives you a way and a reason and a purpose for going through some really tough stuff. And that's just all of us. I mean, life is hard. Adulting is hard. <laughs> and a vision gives you some purpose for why to go through it. Mm. I love it. And that's almost maybe a, a good segue to talk about some of the obstacles that you've been through as you, you know, as you've, you know, done your own recovery. 
and, and had your own, you know, barriers and hard stuff that you were having to deal with and overcome. Maybe talk about that a little bit and, you know, give a perspective of just how far you've come and, and how vision has really, you know, shaped your life now. Yeah, for sure. So I think hope ended up being the thing that was important to me before vision. So there was a point in my life in my early 20s when, you know, I came from a home that we didn't think addiction was really a problem. I lived in, you know, white collar America and, the, you know, just in places that you wouldn't expect addiction to be hitting. But addiction is definitely no respecter of socioeconomics or anything, gender, age, religion, doesn't matter. And I was getting rocked by it. I didn't really know how I got there or why I was there. But I woke up one day, found myself in what we would call a dope house or a trap house, plywood floors, just really, really a bad place you'd only want to see in a movie. And my family was looking for me. They were about to fill out a missing persons report because they couldn't find me. I'd been awake for about seven days at that point. Uh, at that point, you pretty much go clinically insane. And it was not good. And so that's where my family finally found me, pulled me out of that house after about seven days. And, you know, we were just desperate and searching for help. And so life had got lower than I thought it could ever get, ever expected it to be. And so hope ended up being the only reason that I kept myself alive, I think, during that time. I mean, I think I was afraid to end my life, but I, I just hope was that last little bit of something that I was holding on to. And so I finally got to the point to where I wanted to quit, knew that I couldn't, and had to admit that I was an addict, which was terrifying, terrifying to admit. And so I think that was the first time when I realized that, you know, I was about to die. Last guy I got high with, I stood over his casket, looking at his dead body and knowing that's exactly what was about to happen to me. And at that point, once hope had kept me alive, then vision became possible for my life. And so it was, it's just, you know, you have to, you have to have a reason to go through really tough stuff. And if you don't, you just, it, it ends our life. And so the reason that statistically most people do not make it out of addiction is because you just can't see a path out. You just don't think there's anything better. You have no idea. Dreaming is a muscle. It is a, is a active thing that we do. And when you're so used to nothing working out in your life and everything that you tried, you failed at and everybody that's loved you, you've hurt them and crushed them and broke their hearts. You just end up losing purpose in your life. When you lose purpose, the addiction in your life then gets to run over and take over your life. And so I got to that point to where I was, I wanted to live. I knew that I had hope and then I knew that there might be something better than this and I wanted to go for it. And so that's when vision became really important. And so vision ended up being, I wanted to be trusted. I wanted to be a husband. I wanted to be a father. And so it gave me something to fight the really tough stuff for the reason I can, I know why most people don't make it into recovery and out of addiction because you're fighting hard stuff, man. I mean, you're fighting everything biologically, you're fighting everything physiologically, you're fighting your body, you're fighting your memories, the well-worn paths in your brain that are firing, you've reduced levels of all the chemicals, they're all out of balance, and then your environment is fighting against you, your relationships are fighting against you, everything is fighting against you. And so I've been, you know, I've been going through recovery with veterans of wars that have been in the middle of an active war and said, this is way harder, way harder than being at war. And it's true, and that's why most people end up losing that fight, which is really sad. But if vision ended up giving me something to fight for and to go through pain for. So I believe that the road to freedom is paved in pain, so I had to have a reason to go through that pain, and so that's what it was. And it was day after day, week after week, month after month, and each year it would start to get a bit easier for sure because those things in your life are changing. 
But it was definitely a fight for sure. And it was a fight worth fighting to find myself as a free man. Well, I hear you talk about that you just held on to some hope. And you, you did a pretty good job of kind of describing that you hoped or believed that there was something out there better than what you were doing. And, and you kind of held on to that. What were the pieces that you held on to? I know you said your family came and, and sought you out and, and pulled you out of that house. Um, what are the other pieces for you? And, and I, don't, I mean, I guess my question is, is hope different for everybody? You know, what they're hoping for, what they see is different, or is it generally kind of the same? I think it's challenging for different people depending on how you grew up and what you were exposed to. And so hope is a harder thing for someone that's grown up in extreme poverty. When there is a, you know, when there's a generational mindset and there's a lack of hope. So hope for me, honestly, is a bit of a luxury to come back to that word. You know, because I grew up around, I grew up in America. I grew up in a not poor part of America. I didn't grow up in poverty. And so the idea of hope was existed. The American dream that if you did something or put something put effort forward, you could have whatever you wanted kind of an idea. That idea doesn't exist for everywhere. So hope is probably a spectrum that affects different people depending on where they came from. Hope for a successful marriage might be difficult for you to come by if all you've seen is broken families in your past and that was all that was modeled for you. I got lucky or blessed or fortunate or whatever that is to see people that were living the kind of life that I wanted to live modeled around me. As a matter of fact, my family was going to go get healthy regardless of if I did or not. So I had been in treatment for five months at one point, and this was a long-term program. It was like a 12-month program, but I had been there for five months, and I was just – I wanted to go get high. I was done. I, had, I tried and tried, and I was done. And so I packed my bag, walked off, and left. I was, I was out of there. And so you know, I was going to go get high. I was going to go find somebody attractive to do it with. Like I was just – it was over. And so – I remember all the doors were closed that I tried to get to. I could not get myself high. And after about a day and a half, I found myself homeless sitting in the parking lot of a library. I finally called my family after about two days and said, all right, I really want to get well. I'm sorry. I'll go back to that place. They're going to make me wait 30 days till I go back. Just come pick me up. Just come pick me up. I'm really going to do the right thing this time. And they said, we'll meet you. We'll give you money to get to get into a cab to go to a homeless shelter for those 30 days. We're on our way to the family recovery at the place you just left. It wasn't that easy for them to say. They showed up and gave me about $14 for that cab, but they were crying their eyes out. And I remember knowing at that moment, they're going to go become a healthy family with or without me. They've, you know, they're, me being able to use them is over, and they're going to go get healthy. And so they were modeling what it looked like to make tough decisions, and I knew how hard it was for them to say that to their own son. They're saying it through brokenness and tears. And I remember thinking, okay, so I can either choose to go be – a family and healthy with them or go and die and live a life of misery until it's over. And so I did get something modeled for me that looked like hope for sure. Um, but for different people, it, it's there. I think it's there for everybody. I think that hope is, is a thing like love that exists on this planet and it'll find you wherever you are. And so I think if someone's struggling and they didn't grow up in the same kind of uh, environment that I did, I think that hope still exists. I think that hope is an idea that lives and breathes just like the idea or the spirit of love. And so, yeah, it does differ for people, and it's not as easy for some people. But hope is generally just this one idea. It's it's a hope that there's something better than the crappy circumstance that I'm living in, mm-hmm. and that's it. And if you got if you're someone's in a bad circumstance, you know, it's just the hope that something could be better. So, 
I love it. We had somebody on the podcast here just not too long ago that said, without trust, you can't have hope. And, and that brought back a whole bunch of, I love Eric Erickson's developmental theory, right? Cause he talks about your first developmental stage is, is trust versus mistrust. And if you, if you're unable to create trusting relationships with your primary caregivers and it's a spectrum, right? There's different levels of trust. Um, but if there's, you know, stuff going on and it can be a whole spectrum of things that trust versus mistrust, if you're not able to develop a degree of trust, then you can't have hope or your, your ability to develop hope is impacted, right? Because trust and mistrust go tied directly to hope. And so that theory was jumping around in my head. And so the interesting thing in the, the message that I think is most important out of that is that hope is developmental. We can learn how to grow hope, which is super powerful because it's not a, you have it or you don't, we get to develop it and grow it. And you're a perfect example of, of how you do that, right? Cause you've come from, you know, being in a meth house and, you know, ready to die to live in your dream with your family. You're, you know, your father and you're with your family and you're a husband. And, and, and that, that to me is a, the epitome of growing hope. And, and like you said, vision. I mean, those are tied right together. Speaking my, speak my language. I love it. <laughs> oh, it's fun to so, hear. Can, I'd love to rewind if we can, because you've talked about, you're obviously well-spoken, right? You've got kind of an education and a lot of understanding that I think not necessarily everybody that goes through addiction has. You came from a white-collar family. Your family was motivated to go through this recovery process, which I think is such an anomaly right for the people that we talk to so when you we, we kind of did this in a different order than we usually do it in right because we started at rock bottom and kind of have worked towards the optimism a lot of times we start with you know what are the what are the triggers what are the hurdles right that kind of when when you look back at your addiction story you know can you can you pinpoint the why can you pinpoint what started you down that road in the first place? I think so. It took me some years to figure out, but um, I think, you know, hindsight gets clear as you go. Um, I mean, one, I think there is a biological part of it. I think that, you know, my dad had tried to commit suicide before I was born. I didn't find that out until they were trying to do an intervention on me. I just knew that he had quit drinking before we were born. And so my mom's father you know, died from a similar situation. So I think that the family part does matter in there. Um, but I think the thing that was really driving for me, honestly, my biggest deal was spiritual trauma. As a matter of fact, I found myself in this treatment center. One guy that was in my class was getting sexually assaulted by his foster dad. And then the other guy was, you know, an outlaw biker, a sergeant of arms. And he was so tough because his parents would beat him with the metal side of the belt. And in my mind, these guys had a reason to be drug addicts. And so if anything, I'm, my parents are still married. They told me they loved me. They had me in church. They had me in private schools. They were you know, trying to do everything they could. Um, and so if anything, it was increasing the amount of shame that I had in my life because I didn't have a reason to be an addict. You know, I kept on hoping I was going to wake up and have some repressed memory of some kind of a, uh, some kind of a trauma or assault that I had been through that would make sense for why I found myself sitting here in a treatment center. So if anything, it was exacerbating my shame that I didn't on paper have that reason like other people did. 
And so first, first of all, I had to learn how to validate the pain that I went through because when I was a kid in my childlike mind, I wasn't comparing myself to Rodney and to Mike. I was just, I knew that my trauma was my trauma. I didn't call it trauma, but I, things hurt in my life and I was dealing with fear and I was dealing with things that were just really scary. And that when I would get high, it would give me a relief from that. And so to go begin to process it, I had to validate and try to quit comparing analytically with an adult's mind what a child went through because you cannot heal it and allow he uh, kind of learn how to process through that pain if you don't go back and think about it and deal with it like a child that went through it. And so I had to learn how to do that. And once I did that, I gave myself permission or validation that my stuff mattered too. And then I started to kind of open the door and uncover the things that looked great on the outside weren't great. Really, one of the best times was when my family came for a visit. This was the, like, I thought they had everything together, and I was the black sheep of the family. They all came to visit me at the treatment center, and they all had a knockdown, drag-out fight on the front lawn of the treatment center. I mean, they're screaming, and my pregnant sister's waddling around saying to my dad, you'll never see this kid, and they're peeling out in different cars, and that's how, they, that's how this visitation ended. And I remember being so happy. I was like... They're all screwed up too, you know, like all of the, the facade was ripped off and I could see, oh, we're just as messed up. As a matter of fact, we might be more messed up as a family because we try to act like all of our craps together, you know, just because we're not divorced and we say, I love you, you know, we're a hot mess. And so that was like, I fit in with them, which was a beautiful thing. And the other thing that took a little more time to start to really understand was what, um, what I call spiritual trauma. And so I grew up in church, which sounds amazing, um, but also was really presented with an angry God that was difficult to please and really willing to leave. And that ended up creating some deep resentment and some trying to a performance based relationship with spirituality. And so that ended up uh, being a bigger deal in my life than I thought it was. And so I think one of my biggest journeys towards freedom was wading back through that spiritual trauma and kind of replacing unhealthy concepts with God and spirituality with healthy concepts. And so that ended up being, I think my biggest path to freedom, for sure. Hmm. Casually use a bunch of different phrases there, because they're obviously phrases that you know are are your phrases. They're written on your heart, but but I think carry a lot more weight than uh, just being casually said. You you said the phrase performance based spirituality, which holds a lot, right? I think that encapsulates a lot. When did you start using that phrase? What does that mean to you? Yeah, you end up developing prettier phases for messy stuff and you have no idea what you're going through at the time. And so what it ended up looking like was I grew up feeling, watching people have to get rededicated in their lives and like asking God to save them again and again. And I just... As a kid, the way you process that, you think about it in a childlike mind. You're just like, this this God thing is angry, and he's not really happy with us. And it's really hard to like stay in his good graces. And so all I knew was that you know my, my mother and father were not aligned when it came to a relationship with God and spirituality and that. And so I was very close with my mother, and I knew that she didn't have much respect for my dad because of that. And so they've learned how to work through this over the years. But I just want to be really close to her. And so as a kid, as a three-year-old kid, literally in these early developmental ages, you know, I tried so hard to do the right thing because that's who, who my mother was. And she was my example of God and spirituality. 
And so I wanted to be like her and I perceived her as perfect. And so, you know, she really leaned into this church, this, this church. And there was, and this church was really presenting God as angry, you know, as what you hear like hellfire and brimstone preaching. And that stuff was scary, man. As a kid, it was just scary. I mean, I was sleeping at the door of my parents' bed for a lot of years growing up or my parents' room because I was so afraid. I was just, I was full of fear, just full of fear. And my whole environment was 1.1 acres where we lived and that church. And that was what I knew. And so, you know, it, my brain was consumed with this angry God that was difficult to please. And I, I really need to do a good job so I could be with my mom forever. And so I would try, try, try really, really hard. And so what it ended up being through the years growing up was I would feel super ashamed because I was a human and I was doing all these things, you know, and I had all these secrets and I'd have the shame and I would just go, what about all that? Like, I'm not good and my mom is good and everybody else is good. And so I just was, you know, I can't please him. And so it's a lot like being in a marriage where every single day you were trying to make her or him not divorce you. And so like you might really love them in the beginning. Like, if you feel like they're like, mm, like, I'll, I'll leave you if it gets bad enough. As a matter of fact, you should try really hard. And that's their general posi- position. You're going to end up really resenting that spouse. Like, you'll end up really hating them. And so I found myself in treatment one day. And they say, all right, they're kind of having me visualize and go through, like, a guided prayer. And they're like, can you picture Jesus, which is my faith that I grew up in, which was Christianity. And I was like, yeah, I can picture him on the cross. You know, it's a pretty general picture. And they were like, what do you think about that? Or what do you feel or whatnot? Just trying to get me in touch with my emotions. I remember being completely horrified and looking at them and going, do you want me to answer honestly? And they said, yes, of course. And I said, I don't know if we're allowed to cuss on this podcast, but my general answer was, he fucking deserves it. And I remember like, oh, from where I came from, you don't say that. And I was so horrified that that much rage was inside of me that I thought that he deserved to die. That's how much I hated him. And it was the first time I started to really get honest that, oh, my God, there's so much resentment, so much anger, so much hatred. And so it was that performance-based relationship that ended up creating insane amounts of resentment and insane amounts of anger. Mm -hmm. So so for people who don't know you, that's – I mean, I think, you know, you – there's a lot of impact to that statement. But you have a ton of faith now. So for a, for a lot of people, I think they say that sentence, right? He deserved it, and you recognize the anger and blah, blah, blah. And it's so much easier to just walk away, right? I think, yeah. I think for a lot of people, that that is the turning point where they're like, I don't need it. I, I, yeah. I, don't, I don't need all these emotions. I don't need these feelings. So I'm going to walk away, right? I'm, I'm happier in my life without it, right? Which is not the circumstance for you. Right. So there's that's, a, I think, a, a different healing story, you know, there, which would be super fascinating to kind of get to know a little bit more. But how did you take that statement and deal with, you know, those emotions? How did you get from there to make progress? How did they teach you through that process? Yeah, I don't know. I don't even know if they did, except for that they in that moment didn't. I tell you what they did. What the people did was really helpful. Was they didn't go, "Oh my God, how could you say that? That's not who he is. You should love him." I think that if they would, it would have shut down a process. But they had this beautiful posture of fostering an environment for doubt. And so, 
when you show up to treatment or got anybody, just, I mean, anybody, like if you've got these fragmented or broken relationships, that relationship with God was just one of those other relationships and nothing was healthy. And so there was an expectation in that treatment center that any relationship was going to be unhealthy and they wanted to create an environment and they want to push you towards doubt. If I'd have been like, God's so great and I love him and all that, they'd be like, why are you here then? You know, if things were so healthy in your life. And so they, they gave me room to be a mess and a doubt, which was really important. And that gave me permission in my own life to really examine, like, I don't have any actual truths in my life. Like, I have nothing that's fundamentally true, and i got to be willing to question everything. And so I threw that on the table. I remember the first, it was for the first time, I'll just be honest, like, to this day, Christians are a tough group, man. They just are. I mean, I'll just be, like, completely transparent. I love God now, and I'll kind of give you that journey. But Christians are still tough because they're the least curious, open-minded people because they're so driven by that same fear that I was talking about that if we don't feel like we have a concrete answer, we get angry. As humans, we want to be, we want to feel safe. We want to feel just safe, you know, and having a truth makes us feel safe. And so having doubt makes us feel unsafe and that makes us react with anger. And so, you know, these, this group of believers were just great at letting you have room to doubt And so I remember putting everything on the table by way of what was true in my life and saying, I don't know if any of this is true. So let's start with like, is God real? Like, and for real, like I, I don't even know anymore. Like, let's just start with that. Cause if this isn't who you are, then like, I want to know, like, are you real? And then are you good? Like those were big things in my life that I was going to build on. If faith was going to be a part of my life at all, then these things were going to have to be answered. And I realized I don't know anything. And if you're who I think, felt that you were growing up, I honestly don't want anything to do with you. And so I remember when I was that angry and said, you freaking, you know, you just deserved it. I was so angry. I remember, I remember seeing and feeling like he was still there, like almost proud, which is a strange thing. And so it was this deconstruction of a concept of what it was, like this tearing down, which is not pretty, it's not scheduled, it's not organized, it's like a mess. And then it's the, the beginning of this reconstruction of who he really was. And so it's just like meeting someone that you thought was a complete asshole. And then you got to know them and you're like, Oh my God, you're not who I thought you were at all. And so if anything, the, the being at the bottom in my life and brokenness created this opportunity to like, see who he really was. And I, and I wasn't even trying to do that. I was just asking questions and really willing for the first time ever for the answers to not go the way I wanted to and still be okay with that. And so asked me if he existed and I felt like I got that answer. And then I had to ask him some really important stuff. I mean, I'll just be completely transparent because it looks like we're going there. But like, I mean, for me, I had to ask, all right, if there's this, if the eternal punishment thing is literal, I'm never going to be able to love you. That's just real. Like uh, you'll always be, it'll always be performance based no matter how hard I try or what anybody says or how I should approach that mentally. If that thing is permanent and is real and you torture people for eternity, like I, I can't find my keys most days, much less be responsible with eternity. And so if that's real, then, you know, I don't think I'll ever be able to love you. It's like loving a person that's always going to be willing to leave you. And so um, the last guy I got high with that I mentioned guy was, was a guy named Travis. And I remember having stood over his funeral at his casket and going, all right, thank God that wasn't me. Love this dude. He was so great. And so a little bit later, I was sitting there in my room and I felt the emotions of that grief coming on me. And I was like, oh, my God. So I just went and laid on the floor and started bawling my eyes out. And, like, all of my past was catching up. 
all of that grief of Travis being dead was catching up. And all of a sudden, a question I had asked six or eight months earlier, like, God, what's up with this permanent punishment thing? And will you actually leave me? God immediately starts using that grief and speaking into me going and shows me Travis with him in heaven. At the church that I grew up in, people that die of overdose aren't in heaven. That was just what I grew up believing. I remember him showing me Travis and showing me like kind things that he had done in the middle of our, in the middle of our using and getting high together and going, see, I was in him then and I was in him always. And he starts looking at me and going, where are you going to go that I won't find you? I'll never leave you. I'll never leave you. I'll never leave you. I'll always leave the 99 to come after you always. And so that started to change my beliefs about that. He was never going to leave no matter what I did. And so that's when I started to fall in love. I'm like, all right, that's something that I can get down with and somebody that I can love. If you're not going to leave me ever, no matter what, then I'll live for you. So yeah, it ended up being this deconstruction and this reconstruction of who he really was. And then it started a journey of like getting to know him. That's an incredible journey. It's uh, and it's interesting because when we talk about people that are in recovery, they often have a spiritual journey that they've gone through. I'm wondering, as you've touched the lives of a lot of people, um, and I suspect others are out there asking, you know, I, I can't connect with this God. There's no way because it's still, you know, I can't come to the peace that you've come to, Edward. So can people be successful in recovery if they can't, if they, if God's not that spiritual peace for them? I think it's challenging to, yes. I think they can be successful in recovery for sure. Yeah, like I think you can definitely be clean, be sober, and be living a better life than you were living 100%. Um, depending on where beliefs are, like what you think about life, I think that spirituality in general is so much a part of who we are that you're going to end up go that sobriety and recovery by itself will probably end up feeling like too shallow of a goal. And so, like you, you'll know a bunch of sober people that they're still miserable. And you look at them and, and you just kind of intuitively know that they're still missing some other aspect of their life. And so, you know, we're a, I personally believe, just a personal belief that, the, that we have our being part of us, that we're a human being. All right, so this is Eckhart Tolle, awesome author. And he says that we're a human being. So we're fully human and we're fully being. Human is everything that we can see and touch. And it's everything that's external and material. Being is the part of our, that's our spirit. It's the eternal part of us. And so to just deal with the human side of us and try to discount who we actually probably are that was before and will be after the human part of us, you know, fades, um, I think we'll probably end up being discontent. And so I think some form of spiritual, I know personally, again, I'm tipping my hat a little bit and I'm going to make, I'd make a lot of people angry with this, but I think that, you know, I think that if I had grown up in a different place in a different religion, then spirituality would have looked looked different for me. You know, if I'd have had a different set of parents in a different country, a different side of the country, or whatnot, I think that your but someone's path to spirituality, I think, is an important part of their development as a complete and full human. You know, and so I think that you'll, I think there will be a, a lack of fulfillment in life if. Um, you know, if you just get stuck in a trauma and you're saying, you know, I'm going to kind of cut that whole part of me off. It's so fascinating. And you've kind of lent to the idea that as human beings, there is a spiritual aspect to us, right? That whatever's beyond this life. And that again, comes back to a belief system. 
I know for a while I, I was teaching at the university and I taught a death and dying class. And I would sometimes separate the class and I would have one side of the class um, fight for there is no afterlife and the other fight for there is an afterlife. And, and one of the classes that did that, they came to the conclusion at the end that there is something, there is an energy afterlife. And as I was thinking about that transition of how they came to that, I'm like, our whole body, at least this is my perspective, our whole body speaks of something more than just what's here and now, I, I think. But but everybody has to come to that belief system of wh whatever that's like for them. But it's absolutely fascinating, that spiritual peace and, and so many really profound people in our, you know, in, in, in our literature talk about that spiritual aspect of our being. So I love that you talk about it. I love that you're very open about what your journey's been like. And I don't think that anybody's journey has to be the same, but I do think it's a piece and I agree with you on that. Well, let's, uh, let's transition just for a minute and talk a little bit about, um, about your recovery program and, and your intervention. What are you doing right now and how are you helping people right now? Yeah, so I left no longer bound the place that I was leading. We had just made it and it is today this incredible treatment solution in Atlanta. But I had been there for 17 years. It was my whole adult life. And so it was, um, I operated off a model called servant leadership. And so servant leadership is kind of reversing the paradigm of uh, kind of a corporate leadership model to where you get to the top so that you think people are serving you. So servant leadership is kind of was, is most famously talked about right now by an author named Simon Sinek. He talked about Start With Why, and he's a, a full-on servant leadership guy. And so servant leadership ends up meaning that, you know, the higher you go in an org chart just means that you are serving more and more, and the most important person is at the bottom and so you're always giving yourself away, and it's always about what you can give instead of what you can get. And so we operated off of that. So I always knew that uh, if I wanted the organization to grow, that I was going to be the leadership lid of that organization. So I'd always have to grow out of the way so it could grow up to me and then grow out of the way so it could grow up to me because it was never going to magically pass me. And so there, I knew there was going to be a certain day to where the, as a servant leader, the best thing I could do was to step out of the way. And so that day came earlier this year. It said, you know, this place needs a new leader now and as much as I'd like it to be me because I love it. Here's is my baby and my passion. You know, I've got to I got to go through the pain of giving it away right now. And so that was proved to be more difficult than I expected. Uh, and I knew it was going to be hard, um, but it didn't take very long of being away from there to go. Gosh, I want to still serve people like I just the thing that I the reason I was there in the first place, you know, ended up becoming about developing leaders that were serving people and raising money to hire people that were going to serve people and, and about the business of building the organization. But what I loved was the early days of giving back to those guys that are in the program. And those were what just lit my fire. And so it didn't take long of being gone to realize that I still wanted to do that and felt like I still could help a lot of people. Uh, and then the other thing that I wanted to do was, you know, I had also, I did a, a Ted talk a little while back about the industry and it's a bit messed up that we're trying to treat cancer with Neosporin and, and the treatment industry operates a lot more like urgent care and you just you don't go to urgent care when you have a chronic disease and so um you know was, you know i'm a little upset about the yeah there's a as a whole there's a lot of good stuff out there in the treatment industry but there's also a lot of people that are prioritizing profit over people and so i said how can i serve people and help direct people towards effective treatments and so started doing a couple things started another nonprofit called the network of effective treatment to try to find the good ones out there and connect them and then started Fair and Recovery, 
And so Farron Recovery, my daughters are Fallon and Farah. And so together it just made Farron because we're all about family as our family first. And so <clears throat> just started to, uh, to, to do interventions and said, I want to meet everybody around the country and to try to make a list of the good providers. And again, good is just an opinion, but who I thought were, vi- were valuing people over profit. Um, and I wanted to be able to help families in crisis. When my family, when I finally woke up one day, I was ready for help. We go, okay, thank God he's ready. Now what? And like, there's so many families that you're so busy about trying to save your loved one's life. And then you just don't know who to call. You don't know where to start. You just, it's so scary to go click Google because you're like, the first seven are ads. And you know that they pay $200,000 a month for those ads. And you're like, I I don't know. Like, I just, all I know is I want people that love him or her like I do and that it will actually work. And so when a family finally ready to to have someone that will answer that call on the other side and go, I I know how to help you. Like, I know where to point you. Here's where you should go. Here's what you should do. That is just a miraculous thing. And so to be able to be that for those families was something that we, that I really wanted to do. And so, yeah, I'm doing interventions and then help to be able to help them out. So my family and I travel the country full time. Today we're in California we won't be next time you talk to us, and that's the exciting thing. So it makes us extremely mobile. I'm always close to that airport, so I can talk to a family virtually and then hop on a plane and be there to help their loved one get into treatment, get over that hump, and do an intervention with them. Hmm. That's really cool. That that. I mean, again, it comes back to your vision. Is is that you, you know you like how can I how can I give back? How can I serve? and help as many people as possible. And then you just made that fit into what you already love to do. And you're traveling across the country, you can hop on a plane anywhere and go see somebody and help them out. That's pretty cool. And then you just kind of- pretty much it. You leave your family hanging, they just kind of wait for you to come back, huh? Yeah, I mean, I try not to leave them hanging in places that aren't great, but if you look out the window, there's palm trees right now, and it's pretty, pretty great. So yeah, they're not, they're not stuck in, unawesome places but that was it i mentioned that author simon sinek and he wrote that book start with why and so i ended up creating my purpose statement so that i know that if i'm doing something that aligns with my purpose i know that i'm living in my purpose and i'm not only going to be living fulfilled but i'm gonna have the greatest impact and so my purpose statement was freedom for good like that is why i feel like i exist on this planet that i was set free to set other people free so i was it's freedom for good and also the permanence of that statement, freedom for good, like freedom forever. I believe I was set free to stay free and that people can stay free as well. And so, yeah, I was like, all right, I'm leaving this. Non- it was so easily aligned with, with the nonprofit that I was leading. And that was just like, yeah, this is what we do. And so this, I feel like I'm working at the intersection of a calling and a career, and it's just beautiful. But like, yes, to your point, Shelly, when I was leaving, like how do I still operate in that purpose and live a whole different life right now? And so we're just kind of piecing these things together to go, all right, if this works, then I'm living in my purpose. And if I'm living in my purpose, then I believe that I'm a servant leader and I can impact people's lives and help save people not only from the crisis they're going through, but also getting sucked up in the crisis of the industry on the, the darker side of it. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of room for improvement. I mean, we've come a long ways. We're doing it better, yes. but there's a long ways to go. And, you know, addiction doesn't go away in 30 days. So we've got to really change the way we think about recovery. I mean, we are. But there's more. There is more there. So if I'm not mistaken, um, Fair and Recovery is really about you doing intervention and traveling across the country and meeting up with facilities 
that are providing good treatment and you know, you're meeting them, you're learning about their programs and then you're finding a fit for people as you come across them. Have I summarized what, what fair and recovery is doing? Yeah, totally. That's, that is a good summary. Yeah. Then just available to help a family during and after whether it's, you know, recovery coaching or mentoring and whatnot. So, I mean, it's the beauty of being an entrepreneur. I get to stay flexible and find different ways and meet different people that are, that have the same mission. That's why I enjoyed meeting you all and what you're doing because you're just trying to figure out how to get people to be able to stay in treatment longer. And I think that's a beautiful thing. And so, yeah, just, just figuring out how to help families through intervention and then move them into good care and uh, the places that are, that think that are like-minded with, uh, with that family being the priority for sure. Well, I love that too, because even, you know, I found that as we've worked with different facilities over the years, there are some facilities, at least was in the early days, that <clears throat> they were just outright being fraudulent and they just learned how to hide huh. it really well. And, you know, and then when the district attorney calls and we have to go, whoa, really seriously, you know, but I, but the thing that, you know, and so that's, it's out there, there are facilities still out there today that are just you know, they are fraudulently trying, you know, saying they're helping people and they're not, and they're just taking, it's all about the money. And so the thing that impressed me when we talked is that you're really out there trying to find those that really care about the people and that, you know, they are, they're scholarshipping people. They would rather scholarship them than turn them away. And we have to have money to be successful, but they're figuring out how to help people and get them treatment. And there are a lot of different ways to approach that. So I love also that you're a resource that you, you know, you're traveling across the country and I know how active you are at meeting these facilities and learning about what they do so that you can be um, really knowledgeable about referring people out. And I think to me, at least from my perspective, that's super valuable to have those resources and know, yeah, I've been to that facility, I've talked with those people and they have a great program and here's why. I, I think that's a huge resource and, and it says a lot about what you're, at, uh, what you're about and, and how you can help people. Yeah, for sure. It just ends up being a, a how to a vision. I remember in 2014, we were writing a vision for this treatment center, No Longer Bound, that I was leading in Atlanta. And I, one of our big questions during that two and a half, three day vision casting session was, we know what we found is too good to just stay on this 20 acre campus. How do we want to grow it across the country? And the big question was, do we become this multi-campus big conglomerate is that the way that we want to kind of export this vision and we felt the answer at that time was no and so it's very interesting even the vision is a gives us a general destination to navigate to but it doesn't give us a strategy on how to get there and so it's really cool is to believing in the spirituality like i do is just to be be as i continue to be open to that vision is now watching it be executed in a way that I would have had no idea back in 2014. And so what Farron ends up being and this other nonprofit I'm working on and then meeting great people ends up, you know, you're laying the track to export that vision that was back then, which is really cool. And so it's the same vision of what we believe that that place is doing and no longer bound for families now executing it. The how for the, for the vision is now looking like this. And it's just, it's pretty neat to watch and to be a part of and be what I call an active spectator. I feel like I'm watching it on one side but actively doing it on the other side. Hmm. No, I think it's fantastic. I've loved having you on and, and I think we're going to have to catch up with you, you know, here in the future and see where things are going. Cause it's, it feels like you've done so much, 
but now you're you're really going down a path to where you're not even sure how big this is going to get. You know what you want to do, but I can see it getting a lot bigger for you. So it'll be exciting to see just how far you can take this particular vision. Me too. Can't wait. Mm, it's kind of exciting. Thanks for being on, Edward. Yeah, this has been fantastic yeah, talking with you. Me. What's the, I don't think we touched a base on contact info. What's the best way for people to get a hold of you, track you down? Because you're both looking for families that need help, but also facilities, right? Yeah, definitely. So Farin Recovery, F-A-R-Y-N recovery.com is the website. Um, and you can find me at edward at com, and then my cell phone as well. So if you go and contact us there on the website, you just, we will, I'll pick up the phone and I'll answer the email for sure. Awesome. Very nice. Right, hey, Edward. thanks for being here. Happy traveling. And, thanks uh, for having me. 